In his spiritual autobiography, which he entitled The Confessions, St. Augustine tells a story about a time when he was a part of this religious sect called the Manichaeans, and he had an opportunity to meet with their most influential teacher, a man named Faustus. It was a meeting that Augustine had been greatly anticipating because he had a number of questions about some of the beliefs of this group, and so far no one had been able to give him any satisfactory answers. But he knew Faustus's reputation as a teacher, and he figured that if anyone could answer his questions, it would be the great Faustus. When he did finally meet him, though, Augustine was unimpressed. Faustus had not been able to answer his questions, and Augustine realized that Faust Faustus wasn't nearly as wise or learned as people said he was. So instead of being reassured, Augustine left that meeting feeling more and more convinced that he had joined the wrong group and that this Manichaean religion wasn't really true at all. And years later, as he writes about that meeting in his confessions, he comes to realize that what had initially seemed like nothing more than a disappointing encounter, that it was in fact nothing less than the hand of God guiding him away from error and toward the truth. Here's how he describes it as he recalls his past to God. So the renowned Faustus, who had been for so many a snare of death, without his will or knowledge had begun to loosen the bond by which I had been captured. For in your hidden providence, your hands, my God, did not forsake my soul. Ever since I first read that statement, I've been fascinated by the phrase that Augustine uses when he talks about God's work, his hidden providence. In the moment when he was talking with Faustus, he experienced it as just one disappointing conversation that left him with more questions than answers. But later, it's later looking back that he realizes that there was something much greater going on. Later, he saw what was hidden from him at the time, that the invisible hand of God was at work, directing his meeting with Faustus and using it to bring Augustine to salvation. I find Augustine's insight into God's hidden providence in his life fascinating, not because it says something remarkable or unique about Augustine, but because I think it says something true about the ways of God in general. In the present circumstances of our life, while things are happening around us, it's, it's almost impossible to discern the presence of God or what He might be doing, His purposes. It's hidden from us. But as we look back on our lives, if we're attentive, we can often see how God was at work in certain events, how He was using even small things like conversations with someone or very hard and difficult things to, to lead us to salvation. Augustine coined a term to describe this when he spoke of God's hidden providence, but he wasn't the first person to realize that this is how God works. No, the first person to realize this, or at least the first person to talk about it, is the person of Joseph. On two occasions in the book of Genesis, Joseph reflects back on the treatment of his brothers and how they had sold him into slavery. 
But as he talks about it with his brothers years later, as he's reflecting on it, he tells them that as hard as this was for him, he now realizes that his being sold into slavery and coming to Egypt was actually a result of the hidden providence of God. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, he tells them in chapter 45, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then later at the very end of the book, when Jacob has died and his brothers are again worried that now Joseph is going to seek revenge against them, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's a pretty profound insight on Joseph's part. And it's no doubt one that took him years to realize. But it's not just a truth that applies to Joseph. In a sermon that he preached on this passage, the early church father John Chrysostom, he draws a parallel between Joseph's statement and something the apostle Paul later says to early Christians. Hence, Chrysostom says, Paul also said, for those who love God, all things work together for good. This quote comes from chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans. To quote the verse in its entirety, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his promise. John Chrysostom was probably not the first person to draw a connection between this statement by Paul and the story of Joseph, and he certainly wasn't the last. Christians have frequently seen the story of Joseph as a as an example of what Paul means when he says all things work together for good. In fact, I'd go even further. I would say that not only does Joseph's story illustrate the kind of thing Paul was talking about, Joseph's story can actually help us better understand what Paul means when he says all things work together for good. In what follows, I'll explain what I mean by focusing on two phrases that Paul uses. And then how the story of Joseph, is, as well as the broader context of Genesis, can help us understand what Paul means in Romans 8. Now let's start with this phrase Paul uses, for good. What does Paul mean when he says all things work together for good? Now some people might read those words and will think what Paul is saying is that if you love God, then things will go well for you. Or if you love God, then then any difficulty you might experience is, is just, it's temporary. It's a precursor for something that's really great about to happen in your life. Maybe, for instance, you're in a romantic relationship that ends badly and you're disappointed about it. But then you read what Paul says and you, and you think, well, that must mean that God is just preparing me for a really amazing relationship with someone else later on. Or maybe you've been laid off from your job unexpectedly. And then a friend is trying to comfort you and they say, hey, don't worry, all things work together for good. This must mean that God has an even better, higher paying job lined up for you. Uh, Christians often interpret Paul's words in ways like this, but I think that's because we misunderstand what Paul means by his phrase, for good. So what does it really mean, and how does Joseph's story help us understand it? Well, when you first read it, 
You might think that Joseph's story just confirms the kind of interpretations that I was just talking about. After all, doesn't, doesn't Joseph's life follow a kind of rags-to-riches plotline? When we first meet him, his brothers hate him. They sell him as a slave. He's thrown into prison for something he didn't do. His prison mates forget about him after he helps them. All seems to be going very badly. But then everything changes. And Joseph becomes rich and successful. And he gets married to some one woman who's no doubt a beautiful Egyptian. And he has kids. And he's reconciled with his family. And they all live happily ever after. The end. Now, doesn't that suggest that if you love God like Joseph did, then God will work things out so you'll have a happy, rich, successful life later on? Isn't that what Paul means when he says God works all things together for good? Well, no. And if we read Joseph's story closer, it becomes clear that the good that God was working toward in his life wasn't his personal wealth or success. So how then does God work all things together for good in Joseph's life? What is that good? I think we can identify at least two goods that God accomplishes through the hardships that Joseph endures. First, there's the good of his own personal growth and transformation. As I mentioned in the previous session, the Joseph whom we meet as a young man is flawed, especially in his early dealings with his brothers. He, he comes across as arrogant and aloof, as a dreamer who seems mostly interested in his own future glory and who has no problem wearing the symbol of his dad's favoritism in front of his jealous brothers. By the time that he's reunited with his brothers, however, Joseph is a different man. His focus isn't on his own personal success, but on his role and obligations as a leader. He's very conscious of the fact that his position isn't something he earned. He knows it's a gift of God. He's fully aware that he needs to use what he's been given for the good of others. And even though he tests his brothers, when the time comes to reveal himself, Joseph is someone who is quick to offer them forgiveness for the wrong they've done. And in that way, the story of Joseph is very similar to the story of others we see in Genesis. We've already seen how God used hardship and disappointment in the lives of men like Abraham and Jacob to, to transform them into men of greater faith and humility. And the same is true of Joseph. And when we see that pattern, it can help us understand what Paul means when he says all things work together for good. People often quote that verse from Romans, but they often stop at verse 28, and they don't quote the verse that follows. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And with those words, Paul, Paul is clarifying what good he's referring to when he says God works all things together for the good of those who love him. The good that God is working toward is our transformation, that we might, as Paul says, be conformed to the image of his son Jesus, that our character might come to resemble his. And whether or not we ever find the romantic partner we're hoping for, 
or get the kind of job we'd love to have isn't really the point. God used hardship in the lives of Joseph and Jacob and Abraham for the good of their own transformation. And he does the exact same thing for us. That's what Paul means with his phrase, for good. But what about that other phrase he uses in that verse? Paul says that all things work together for good for those who are called. Now, a lot of modern readers feel very uncomfortable by this phrase because it suggests that God calls some people and he doesn't call others. And that just seems like unfair favoritism on God's part. Does this mean that God only cares for the good of some people and not for others? Well, that's a big question. But again, I think that Genesis and the story of Joseph can help. Among all his brothers, Joseph is the one chosen by God to be the man who will help to, to lead and rule the land of Egypt. But that doesn't seem entirely fair, does it? I mean, what's so special about Joseph? And this isn't the first time that God has chosen someone like this in the book of Genesis. In chapter 12, he chooses a man named Abram to be the father of his special people. Later on, he chooses Isaac to be the son of promise rather than Ishmael. And he chooses Jacob to be the man who will become the father of Israel, despite the fact that Jacob is the second born and Esau should have been the one to inherit his father's legacy. This is a major theme that you see in Genesis. And to some people, it might seem unjust, and it might suggest that the God of the Bible is an arbitrary deity who just likes some people and he disregards the rest. But that's not true. Do you remember, do you remember what God told Abram when he called him? You remember what he said about why he was going to bless Abram? He said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I am going to bless you, he tells Abram, so that you will be a blessing. In fact, as he goes on to say, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. So you see God's call of this man isn't a declaration that he only cares about Abram and his family. It's, it's actually a declaration that he has chosen to use this man and his family as his means of bringing blessing to the world. And you see the same thing in the life of Joseph. When Joseph tells his brothers how God has used their decision to sell him as a slave, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Then again later, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God did not choose Joseph simply for his own good, nor because he loved Joseph and he didn't care for the rest of his brothers. No, God, God called Joseph, God chose him to be the means by which he could preserve the entire people of Israel through a time of famine, the means by which he could save the lives of countless others beyond Israel. Remember, Abraham was told 
that his calling would serve the purpose of blessing the nations. And it's in the life of Joseph that we begin to see this promise come true. Joseph is called not simply for his own good, but for the salvation of many. And the same was true for St. Augustine. When he remembered that conversation with Faustus, he realized that as disheartened as he might have felt at that time, what he could not see, but was very much real, was the hidden providence of God at work. God was using his meeting with Faustus for the good of his own salvation, but not just for Augustine's good. Although he himself would never know it, Augustine would go on to become one of the greatest and one of the most influential teachers in the entire history of the Christian church. When he looked back on his own life, Augustine knew that God was at work and he knew that God was using what seemed to be circumstantial events in his life to bring him out of error. What he didn't know was that God in his hidden providence wasn't just rescuing Augustine from error. He wasn't just working all things together for the good of Augustine. He was calling Augustine and working for his good so that he might be a blessing and a source of good for the entire church. Because that is what God does. He did it with Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. He did it with Augustine and he does it with us today. Oh,